You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. And there's one more thing to mention. This podcast relies on the generosity of others to keep it going. If you're someone who has supported the podcast already, be assured that you will receive, eventually, a Thoroughly Good badge as a measure of my thanks. If you're someone who likes the idea of receiving a badge, or indeed joining the throng of discerning individuals who have supported the podcast already, please head over to the Thoroughly Good blog at thoroughlygood.me, where you'll find a donate button, Anything you can spare would be very much appreciated. On all my travels, I'd take a boat. Usually I'd leave it in the country I visited. When my friends took a trip, I'd give them Hello, Podcast 41 features composer Jonathan Dove, whose works in his 60th year feature in the Salisbury International Arts Festival. It was there I heard the Ciccone Quartet with tenor James Gilchrist perform a work they commissioned from Jonathan Dove, an 11-movement song cycle entitled In Damascus, based on a translation of a poem by Syrian poet Ali Safar, described as a bleak vision of ineffably historical beauty torn apart by indiscriminate war. One of the movements, entitled On My Travels, I'd Take a Book, resonated with me during the performance on the 4th of June in St Martin's Church, Salisbury, the opening of which featured at the top of this podcast in a recording by the Ciccone Quartet with Mark Padmore. And listening back to my conversation with Jonathan and that movement again today. It illustrates the touching way the composer describes in that conversation how words on a page inspire him to compose. Like many of these interviews, I appreciate the way that meeting new people in an unusual location to talk about their work heightens my attention to the music they feature in that I subsequently listen to. It is an incredibly special way of widening one's appreciation for the art form. It also helps when the interviewee is not only game, but incredibly affable too. What have you been doing today, please? Are we now on, or is this more? Uh, This is very much on, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you now feeling nervous? (laughs) Um, I was composing a bit this morning, um, but... This afternoon I came to see a rehearsal of Office in the Underworld, which is one of the shows in the Salisbury Festival, and I'm this year's guest artistic director. Uh, the, the show will be performed tonight, but I won't be able to see it because a piece of my own is being performed up the road, also part of the festival. Um, unfortunate timing. Um, so this you make all... it sound as though you've been denied. <laughs> denied the opportunity to see Orpheus in the Underworld because of your own creativity. Uh, but in is fact, I managed to see both. So I've, right. had, I've had my cake and I'm about to eat it. Right, OK. Uh, what did you particularly like about Orpheus in the Underworld? Well... It, it's a visual thing, actually. They, they created a, a bicycle that goes round in a circle in which all of the gods on Olympus can cycle, and they just spin round and round. You have to see it, really. <laughs> you love theatre, don't you? I do, yeah. I was kind of stage-struck as a kid, um, and 
uh, actually, it, it kind of got me quite early. Uh, I had a cousin who was an assistant stage manager at the Greenwich Theatre. And when I was, I don't know, seven or eight, I think, um, I and my brother and sister were drawn in to help um, paint chairs for the opening night of the Greenwich Theatre. Um, the chairs like were the still first wet. Night, the first night yeah. at Greenwich Theatre. Yeah. And the, and the chairs were still wet when, when the guests arrived to sit down. The audience chairs? Mm-hmm. Um, it was the chairs in the, in the restaurant, yeah. Um, but we also did things... I don't know. We got... Um, wow, they'd run out of budget. Though. <laughs> I think it was just to try and keep us quiet. Uh, oh, I but, see. But right. they didn't rise out. Do you like Greenwich Theatre? I mean, I live around there, you see, and I've, I've gone to Greenwich Theatre a couple of times. I've, never, I've always thought it was a bit weird. Oh, I loved it. We went to everything. I mean, really, every show. Um, and... The, the hammock from Spithead the Mutiny became our Christmas present one year. Um, and oh, I can remember the, the pantomimes. And I was so inspired by the, uh, seeing this, the magic that they created with ultraviolet light. Um, <laughs> it was particularly ultraviolet light, actually. Uh, and, um, but all kinds of special effects. And I, could, I, could, I wanted to create them for myself. And so uh, I made a series of increasingly elaborate model theatres as a as a teenager, uh, the last of which used all of my Meccano set, and, and I was inspired by uh, my architect parents' mm. plans of the Olivier Theatre. So I actually made a model theatre which had a revolving stage, and the idea was that it, would, it, sh- it was to go up and down hydraulically. It was a rather primitive mechanism I had, but I used a bit of an old gramophone to make the revolving stage, and I had an ultraviolet light for transformation scenes. I mean, I, I was really fascinated by the, the spectacle of it and the, and the magic of it. Um, I didn't really do very many plays. I just liked you know, making the, the scenery and the scene changes and imagining the show that could happen. How old were you when you made your first model theatre? Oh, well, I don't know, probably again eight or nine. I seem to remember it involved a shreddies packet. And a gramophone player. Later on. Oh, oh I see. Yeah, that was yeah, a, yeah. I think I was probably 16 developed. by the time it had all of the equipment. Right. I mean, I didn't really expect you to reveal all of that. <laughs> I, just looked the, I, say, I just looked at the Wikipedia page. And said, oh, he came from Family of Africa. <laughs> um, uh, so... So, the theatre, so yeah, that, that's where yeah. the theatre thing comes from, because I think I can hear theatre in nearly all of your music. I, think I don't know whether that's the case or not. Well, I think there's storytelling, really, in all of it. Um, uh, so even when it's um, you know, church music, that's still telling a story... Uh, maybe not telling a whole story, but you're getting like a fragment of you know the, the Magnificat is a moment in a, in a narrative, but it's a very extraordinary moment. So I, I suppose to, yeah, to some extent, I'm still I'm still I'm always seeing a scene, uh, a dramatic. Scene. Am I trying to make too much of a link then by asking you about that? No, I think I think that's absolutely that's absolutely true. I mean, I was also very um, lost in stories as a as a child, and I can remember being buried so much in a book that I didn't notice that all of the rest of the class had stood up and it was the end of lesson. And everyone was just quietly laughing to themselves at this really? one bookworm who was... I don't know what story I was reading, but I was you know, far away in, a, in another land. How utterly delightful. <laughs> Gosh. Um, that, that's completely thrown me. <laughs> that hasn't happened before. Um, the well, so music and storytelling I kind of... Okay, Came together um, in a way that, you know, even as a as a teenager, I was also always improvising at the piano. I've just I spent hours every day 
just making up music. I never wrote any of it down. Or, and when I tried, it wasn't very good. I, I was never able to really capture... So you could, you could listen by ear. You could play by ear. Yes. And, uh, and I think some days it probably sounded more modernist than others, and some days it might be very tuneful. But I do remember sometimes I would have a book on the music stand, and so I'd be reading a story and kind of playing what I was uh, reading. So were you playing before you read music? Uh, yes, yeah, I, my, my mother was a very good pianist, uh, although she was a full-time architect. In the evenings, after the kids had gone to bed, she would play the piano, and as we were drifting off to sleep, we would hear the sound of the piano playing coming down the corridor. And then the next day I would try and play by ear the things that I'd heard her playing. Um, and then, but my sister had started, she's two years older than me, and she'd started learning to play and my father made a little chart which showed exactly how the keys of the piano related to the notes on the stave so it was a really good way of learning to read music so that was very painless and I learned very tell me about that That, this is you're very good at this we've obviously done this before um yeah he created a chart that related to the Keys on the yeah, it was just a, it was a long uh, how, how to describe this without oh hang hands. on as in um, sort of it set the, on the music stand um, but it exactly it was exactly as long as the the crucial part of the keyboard so it was probably two octaves above and two octaves below middle C um, but exactly the same size as the piano keys so there were there was kind of like another it was an annotated keys. keyboard yeah and then you saw how each note went up to its right the right place on the musical wow. staves. Um, I don't know why He's more prob- people don't have those. Well, no, indeed. That seems like a very sensible idea. He was yeah. a problem solver then. Yes, I suppose that in one way is what architects do. Um, I don't know. I don't know any. <laughs> That's why... I, no, but I'm struck by... There is a link for me between uh, you coming up with a model theatre hmm. uh, and using a gramophone player, <laughs> which I'm sorry. <laughs> it's both brilliant and utterly annoying at the same time because... <laughs> I remember what I was doing when I was sixteen, um, and and him being uh, and him solving a problem like this is how to you know this is mm. how to annotate the keyboard. Maybe maybe again I'm reading too much into that. Maybe I'm making a link that isn't there. Well, I think I mean he was he was very good at making things. And uh, when my parents um, designed a house for us when I was nine. Um, he made a lot of. He did a lot of the carpentry in it. He, you know, made the cupboards as well as designing the building. He actually made quite a lot of the things inside it. So, um, and I can remember as a, as a child, he made us a fantastic toy, which was uh, it was a kind of windmill operated by sand. He poured sand in through the top, and and it. So it's kind of the same principle as a as a water mill, um, but, but it just had, less messy. Sales, yes, well, <laughs> less wet, differently messy. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so he sounds like a great dad. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that was I once asked my dad if I could get some wood wood from the local wood store because I wanted to build a police box. This happens quite a lot in this podcast, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, and because I was just completely obsessed by Doctor Who and I just wanted to have my own police box in the garden. And I started using, started building it using uh, the wood that I could find in the garage, which I thought was terribly resourceful. And and then I said, actually, I need some more uh, some more wood. And my dad said, well, that's fine. I'll, I'll I'll get it for you. And weeks went by where he kept telling me on the way to school, no, it's ordered. They just haven't got any supplies in at the moment. And um, <laughs> really bothered me because it's taken me thirty or forty years to realise that actually he was completely right. <laughs> he, he hadn't ordered the wood at all. He didn't care. So I'm that's why I'm interested in um, that connection because I just think, oh, I'm slightly jealous of that. Um, 
The uh, I've listened to quite a lot of your music. Uh, the first work that I heard was Mansfield Park last year, mm. and uh, rather like today, I went to Water Perry Opera and I went there very quickly and I heard a snippet of it. Uh, and I was struck by its immediacy and its theatrics. I realise it's an opera, but I was struck by its theatrics and its its efficiency. Uh, and I wonder whether whether you recognise what I'm saying. Yes, I do. Um, I'm not sure I can, off the cuff, immediately explain how I arrive at that. But um, I suppose I do... I mean, I do aspire to communicate directly. I, I really want people... For example, I mean, phrase a bit basic. I want people to be able to hear the words. So I, I like to set you know, English in a way that it's still funny, um, if there are jokes in it, because sometimes you can kill a joke by setting it to music, and I really would like or, or to... Or indeed even trying to tell a joke, <laughs> I think. You but something's also become funny by singing them. Um, and it's interesting having a, a sense of both of those possibilities. There's a lot to be said about Mansfield Park in particular, because um, as it happens, that was a, a sort of fantasy to write that particular piece for, for many, many years. But I think when I first thought about it, I don't think I knew how to write the music that it would need. Um, I just, I, when I read Mansfield Park, I heard music, um, and I just felt the kind of the presence of music in the story in a way that I hadn't done with Pride and Prejudice or Emma, which I think are much more entertaining books to, to read. But there was something else with Mansfield Park. And I was like, oh, that's... <laughs> music in the characters' lines or in the settings? Did it, it was more in the settings and, and I could remember when I mean I kept telling people for years after that, uh, oh I'd really like to make an opera of this and a particular kind of opera that it would be something that you could do in a stately home just for the mm. piano mm. which is what I eventually did uh, when I persuaded someone that that was what they really wanted to commission really? <laughs> but, <laughs> through that conversation. <laughs> yeah, this would be great <laughs> Um, so that's, that's kind of some, some decades later. But when I thought about the story and what are the scenes you absolutely have to have in the piece, um, two that stood out were two that I could remember feeling music in when I read the story. And um, one is in the, the wilderness scene where um, all, uh, all of the fan's companions... Uh, disappear into the wilderness in a way that we sense is amoral that 
no respectable person should be going there, but they're all up to no good. And Fanny, in some distress, is left sitting alone outside this locked gate on, on a bench, seeing it all, but, but n- not able to influence anyone to behave better. And, and I remember f- feeling music in that scene, and that was certainly... So that was a scene that I knew had to be in the opera. And there's another scene which I thought was heartbreaking, and, and I still do. Uh, so Fanny, who's the kind of Cinderella figure, the... the um, well, in fact, the poor relation who has come to the Bertram household and is in love with the, uh, the second son of the house, Edmund. But Edmund has been very distracted by the, the plausible and glamorous Mary Crawford, and so he seems to stop noticing Fanny. And then they have this moment together uh, where they're, they're in the drawing room, they're looking out of the window at the stars and pointing out particular stars and... Uh, and everyone is saying, oh, isn't it wonderful? I, I, so it's a long time since we've had any stargazing. I don't know how that has happened. Um, and at that moment, Mary Crawford in the distance starts to sing. And Edmund is drawn away from Fanny's side, helplessly, really, like a, like a moth to the candle flame. He can't help himself. And he goes, and Fanny is left alone, staring out of the window at the stars. I still find that a very yes, I can tell. It's upsetting. Yes, because um, there's a lot of detail in there yeah. that you're providing, which is so clearly it touched you. It, it did. Did, that, and, did and, that make comp- composing it easier? I get that it would have made it fun, or, <laughs> or or something that you absolutely had to do. Did it? Did it present challenges though? I think you're being moved by a story. Seems to me to be an important starting point, um, and I hope that my emotional reaction to the story will, in some way. find expression in the music that I eventually write but I don't really have any control over that and it's really hard for me to say if it's actually happened until I see the audience responding Um, and actually I mean what was it was fantastic at the Waterbury Opera production last year people were literally wiping away tears as they leapt to their feet to to give the cast a very well deserved standing ovation I was struck there by how even though in a very short space of time I was struck by the immediacy of the space so, you know, mm. it, is a, it is a story that is clearly very well suited to that location because that was the intention. Yeah. Uh, but also with a small audience and a very small distance between the audience and the performers, we were living, living the drama or experiencing the drama almost as, a, as another character in the, in the, uh, in the show. Uh, and I, I was really... I found that combined with the immediacy mm. of the music was was quite touching. Well, I think that's... I feel like I might be over-flattering you now, but... but. <laughs> well, I know, but I think that draws on, on an experience I had um, with a touring opera company, which is, in a way, my apprenticeship uh, in my 20s, um, playing the piano for a, an op- a touring opera company, but also rescoring famous operas, uh, um, Star and La Boheme. No, this was, uh, it was then called City of Birmingham Touring oh, Opera. Okay. It's now a Birmingham Opera Company. And they don't do those kind of touring productions anymore but I um, I realised that there was this trade off that uh, you lost the, the immensity of a, of a full orchestra which is a very immersive thing in itself, it can be a very overwhelming sound but you could then play in sometimes smaller spaces and the audience would be much nearer to the singers mm-hmm. and then the voices themselves become overwhelming and, and I realised that ten singers which is what we had in full staff I remember for the Birmingham production uh, was a thrilling sound, and even though the orchestra was only 15 instruments, um, 
you were completely immersed and enveloped in this, uh, just in the, in the in the power of the voices. Mm. So uh, that was, I suppose, in my mind when I later on used ten singers with no chorus when I wrote Flight for for Glyndebourne, and there are ten singers also in Mansfield Park. It's it's a, I mean that's quite a big cast, but mm. it's not impossibly big. It's sort of achievable, um, and when they're all singing together, it's a thrilling sound. And particularly if they're all singing together in you know, the drawing room or the ballroom of a stately home, uh, you are, you know, that's as much sound as you can take in. There is something about the, um, the immediacy of, of the voice when you're, when you're in that close proximity mm. with the voice, as was demonstrated in uh, Opera on a Park's hip-hop to opera film that Michael Volpe mm. made. Um, and I have, since watching that film, I have experienced myself that when you get to a certain distance yeah. uh, and then someone hits a particular note, it resonates yeah. and it just touches you and there's nothing that anybody can do. That that, that moment has to pass. Um, was Flight set in a similar sort of scale space? No, a Flight was a main stage opera production. That was for Glyndebourne and that was the first time that I had... Uh, a full symphony orchestra and a completely professional cast and a whole evening um, to to play with. And I think in that you can hear the excitement of having all of these toys, if you like. Um, and then also the excitement of this particular story of having... Uh, it was my, my collaborator, April DeAngelis, came across the true story of the refugee living in Charles de Gaulle Airport. And that was very different from what we had been setting out to do originally, which was to, to write uh, a comedy of mitch, mismatched couples, probably uh, sort of something uh, like Cosi Fantote, or I mean, I had said, let's try and write a Figaro for the 90s. And then a refugee in an airport is something completely different. But you're thinking, that's, but it's irresistible. An aeroplane's taking off. I, I just, you know, I want, I want to write that. And, and anyway, some of that comedy of... of couples uh, found its way into the opera along with the refugees so it's a, a curious mixture a bit of a hybrid you have to tame your, your enthusiasm in meetings with commissioners. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just had a flash of, of thinking, God, it's a nightmare in a meeting. <laughs> so, no, we could do this. Let's do this. I mean, do you, do you find you have to tame your enthusiasm? You are an enthusiastic individual. Uh, I, that's a compliment. <laughs> yes, well, I guess, um, obviously, yes, I get, I get carried away by things and that is what makes the music come out. Yeah, so, and that's yeah, a lovely yeah. thing. Don't get me wrong. I realise that might sound like an insult. Um, uh, that, I, I suppose it was flight that the, the, the orchestral excerpts or the suite mm. 
that I heard today that made me think there are there's theatrics in the score. You know, it sounds quite sort of it's brilliant and it's and it's tantalising. There's lots of uh, fun textures. It's the kind of thing that would make a kid's eyes <laughs> widen. Um, I've read somewhere that it's wrong to ask a composer how they do that, or it's wrong to ask a composer to describe their work. Uh, I don't know if that's the case, is it? Well, I, I, think, you could, I think you can always ask. Um, but well, let's ask. <laughs> it's just it's quite hard to say because, in a way, all I'm doing is writing the music I want to hear. Mm. And, you know, mm, and when I've written one thing, I think, well, what do I want to hear next? Oh, I want to hear this. Um, and so you're writing for yourself? Entirely. It's very selfish. Right. Um, but I'm very lucky that, on the whole, if I manage to please myself, it, it seems that usually I please others. Not everyone, but I will, you know, please... You haven't pleased everyone? No, there's always somebody who's having a horrible time. Really? Yeah, he's usually a critic. Right. Yeah. Do they normally come and talk to you? Never. They never... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so can you de- so okay so it seems okay to ask a question can you describe your your style of music then? Um, I can probably describe aspects of it uh, I mean a lot of it is is to be sung whether it's on stage or a solo singer in a concert or a choir or a chorus in a concert that's nothing to do with church um, I rarely write purely instrumental music so that, um, but I do and I, I also enjoy that enormously um, but so obviously with voices I think comes naturally comes melody um, and so I enjoy that I enjoy just the sound of the, of the, the voices can make um, it is I think you can describe it as pandiatonic. Um, pandiatonic. I, uh, but then uh, you There's know, a I, phrase I, I haven't to... heard before. Right, <clears throat> OK. But, you know, I can't quite remember what the most well, economical I'm... definition of that is. What? Um, uh, I'm well... certainly using... I'm using diatonic material, but it's not, strictly speaking, tonal. Uh-huh. Um, although, I think, to be honest, to, to, I think the average audience will think this is tonal music. Yes. Um, and the only reason I say it isn't exact, strictly tonal is that relatively rarely is there a perfect cadence um i'm not really observing the the classical hierarchy of key relationships um i i feel that actually the way i'm writing is more modal and um i'm also often not using major and minor scales but slightly varied scales which are different tunings of my own but i'm i almost never use all 12 notes at once, so it certainly doesn't. It doesn't feel chromatic, and it um, it connects with traditional harmony. There are a lot of triads. Um, so <laughs> I get get this impression that a you're feeling really uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but maybe that is because, as you say, this is instinctive. And what I'm trying to get you to do is to annotate something that is largely an instinctive process. But it's partly that, but it's also, I suppose, that. that there's how it makes sense to me on the inside and the things that I'm thinking about. Um, but I don't particularly want the audience to be worried about any of that anyway. And I don't think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that audiences who have no expertise uh, in modern music and don't necessarily play an instrument, don't even read music, um, you know, they will just enjoy it as sound. Um, 
So the way that it's actually made and put together doesn't really matter. So I think, I mean, easier words you could say, I suppose I'm interested in things that are catchy. Yes. So I'm, I like to work with music, with material that I can remember. Um, and sometimes it becomes a, a bit obsessive that I, if I hit on something that I really like, I tend to like to repeat it. Uh, so uh, catchy and quite rhythmically driven um, mm. So, uh, yeah, I think... And I, I, energetic is what I've heard people say quite often about. It reaches a certain music. number of beats per minute, which is what... I, I edit a lot of video, and, uh-huh. and so I appreciate that if you, have, if you are editing video which has uh, a low number of beats per minute, mm. then you run a very high risk of the audience, especially on mobile phones, not sticking to the end of the video. So actually by ramping up the number... Of, if you, you're <laughs> smiling at me like I'm, like I'm talking rubbish. But actually by, by ramping up the number of beats per minute, hmm. then actually, if they're listening, they will stick with it. Um, that's what I hear. I wonder whether me asking you this is a bit like, what are you doing? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Is it, is it, an odd, is it odd to be cross-questioned about it? No, it's, 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 it's fun. And I'm... I'm I, I uh, feel I probably should be able to give you more practiced answers <laughs> at this point. It suggests that other people haven't asked you this question before. Um, actually, not so much, not in technical detail, um, but I suppose more often, I, I quite often talk about my music to an audience just before they are going to hear it, and I will talk about everything about the piece rather than the notes it, themselves, because I think it's, it's confusing and also... It sets up expectations, doesn't it? Beforehand, I think if you go into a lot of detail, I've just, just leapt into your answer, which is a very bad thing. To do. No, it's true. I mean, they haven't had the experience yet, so yes, exactly. You, know, yes. you, you could talk about it differently after they've heard it's it. It's a bit like saying to somebody, "Look, there's a Christmas present under the tree. Yeah. You are going to unwrap it, but before you do, I'm just going to tell you what it is," which seems to be ruining the surprise. But also, if you describe it in great technical detail, you, people might not realise. But it's a humming top. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. It doesn't have any batteries. We don't need to know. Um, what, was the, what was the most important piece of advice you received as a composer when you were starting out? I realise that you started out as an arranger, but I essentially mean, I essentially <laughs> think that's you just composing. <laughs> um, in a way, there was, it wasn't exactly a piece of advice, but it was a really useful reaction, uh, which was my first composition lesson at university which was with composer Robin Holloway and at that stage I was still wrestling with what I thought we were supposed to be doing what music ought to sound like and I hadn't uh, would say, you know, I hadn't found my own voice so I was trying to write music that sounded like other well that was trying to be like other people and so I was trying to be a good serialist and I wrote a, a 20-page serial organ piece. And I played this through to Robin Holloway, and on page two he said, I'm bored already. Oh. And I could <laughs> feel my lower lip start to tremble. Oh, really? But I also thought, yeah, it is right. And I thought, well, if, if this isn't the most exciting Was thing I can think of... Was this in front of people? No, no, oh, right. it wasn't. Um, then I thought, well, if I'm not writing the most exciting music I can think of, why not? And so I suppose that, you know, lit a fuse. And it took me some years to... I mean, I was nearly 30 by the time I was able to finish a piece that felt like me. Uh, and I can, I can remember working with uh, two dancers and imagining them dancing, and I suddenly started hearing this music, um, 
and there was this 17 quaver bass pattern that was clearly going to repeat and I could hear melodies floating over the top and I thought yes that that is the music I want to hear and it will never be programmed by the society for the promotion of new music I felt this is this is I could I could tell it was not respectable and that it was not uh, what I thought the sort of officially approved style of new music was but I also I think in that moment realized well but that doesn't really matter. There's enough of that. There's enough officially approved new music going on. Well, as in sort of ab- abstract sounding. It wasn't, it wasn't yeah. pushing far enough, but, it was a, but what you were creating was something that reflected you. Yes. Right. And it was something else. And I, and I thought, well, I, I'm just going to do this. I'll, I'll go over here and make these sounds, and people who want to go to you know, serious modern music can go over there and listen to those. I didn't feel there was any shortage of serious Did you experience music. any resistance then? I mean, that sounds like the way in which you described it sounds very sensible and very pragmatic. And it's okay, you do that, I'll do this. We don't need to talk to each other. You know, that, that sounds very sensible. At the time, did it feel like that? Well, I was in a, it was a very helpful context for me because working with dancers, I was quite clear no one was coming to watch dance in order to hear the score. You know, they were coming to see some dance. And so I felt like I could really do what I liked. Um, and there weren't going to be any music critics there, and I didn't need to be advancing the history of Western music with every note that I write. Um, is that retrospective, though? <laughs> is that what you're doing there? Are you being? Are you retrospectively? Is that hindsight bias? How can I tell if it isn't? But it, uh, well, well. <laughs> but I can see now that there was certainly was a freedom there, and yeah. uh, and I worked. You know, I wrote a dozen pieces with these dancers, uh, and also around that time, a film score. And I think all of that crystallised what was developing, which was a, a real fondness for uh, for diatonic and I suppose quite quite tonal material. It wasn't necessarily again to, going back to the grammar of it. It doesn't necessarily behave in a completely tonal way, but it was uh, those familiar musical objects. And you know, with dancers, obviously pulse makes yes. sense and and strong rhythm. Um, so. It's recognisable elements then, actually. When I hear you say mm. that, it's familiar elements. That is what people are responding to. If there are sufficient familiar elements, even if they don't necessarily um, follow what has gone before, if there are familiar elements of mm. what they're hearing, they will latch onto it. I, for example, the very opening chord of Mansfield Park is a chord of C major. Uh, and not only is it a chord of C major, which is like the sort of the safest <laughs> musical object there is. The vanilla. Uh, the vanilla <laughs> but also, um, when I orchestrated it subsequently for a 13-piece band, so there's a, an, an instrumental version of, of the opera as well, with just strings on that chord, you think, well, that is actually the chord, that is the opening of the Schubert C major quintet. Um, so that is familiar. However, the next thing that happens isn't. It's, it's, it's something else, and the music uh, goes off in its own direction. And... Um, Every, I, my intention in Mansfield Park, particularly, was that all of the elements, you know, the, that there weren't, there are no chords in Mansfield Park that Jane Austen could not have heard. Okay, she wouldn't have heard them in that order, <laughs> <laughs> um, or in those rhythms. Right. Um, was that a deliberate thing? Yes, I, you know, still, I, I didn't want to write a pastiche early nineteenth-century piece, but at the same time, wanted it to have some connection with that world. And so that was my. my you were way paying of doing homage. That. Yeah, um, but also storytelling. Hmm. 
because you know yeah, I mean I've seen a number of uh, cinematic adaptations of Mansfield Park um, which I found very unsatisfactory because it seemed to me that they couldn't quite uh, tell the story in its own time although they might be still in period frocks they kind of wanted to make the characters more modern and they mm-hmm. wanted Fanny to be more proactive and a bit more like Elizabeth Bennet and so the story doesn't really make any sense then and I'm like, we don't want to do that we only want to tell this story uh, but we have to find a way of doing that and, and to do that it seems that you had to find a way of a, uh, creating or making tangible some of the formality of the period that there, were, there are restraints that not everything is possible and so musically not everything is possible I can't use modern chords and modern rhythms it's, it has to be um, recognisable of, of that period um, and then you can my hope is that then you can recognise also that the characters can't not everything is allowed and that certain things would be very shocking and are shocking when so if a you know if a marriage uh, fails in that period the consequences are, are different from a marriage failing now I'm not saying it's ever, it's ever nice and there are there's, there's, there's damage uh, but it's different. Um, a question that springs to mind is: uh, I, so I, I see you as a, as an opera composer. I know you write, you have written orchestral works, but I see you as an opera composer. Are there? Is there anything in the present day, given the tumultuous times that we are currently living, that you feel tempted to write about? Is there anything that is sort of, or, or is it a case of? Um, you uh, librettists and opera composers have to wait for the journalists to write the first draft before they sort of approach the subject. Oh um, well, I I am at the moment working on a, a, a piece about a refugee, which is I mean obviously I'm, I there's a refugee in in the opera flight, but this is. Um, quite literally attempting to follow the story of a refugee from leaving home to arriving in this country and uh, and arriving successfully so somebody who who makes a journey um, so that I mean that's something that's going on right now and I think we can certainly write about that I are you were you drawn to it or, or I mean essentially it's a, that is a story uh, I realise what I'm about to do but that is a story which is sort of <clears throat> as old as time in a way that's, yes. Or is it, or is this particular story one that is rooted in the present day? Well, without uh, wishing to, to dig too far into it, it is. But I mean, maybe another example, uh, which is much more of a struggle, um, was when I was invited, um, gosh, more than ten years ago now, to join a Cape Farewell on a voyage to the Arctic uh, with some very famous musicians, but also scientists. Uh, whose role would be to explain to us what was changing and how climate change was affecting this part of the world. And uh, it, it wasn't really explicit, and now you've got to go away and, go away and write about it, but it was clear that the, the aim of the organisation was to reach an audience that hadn't yet been reached. That they felt that scientists had been saying the same thing for 20 years and the same people were listening, but it wasn't enough. Mm. Um, and that was very challenging because I felt, well, this is this is clearly, this is the big story of our time. It's happening now. We don't know how the story ends. 
we know how we hope it might, it might go or how it, you know that there are some versions that are better than others um, and how can I respond to this and particularly not wanting to I, d- I never want any work that I do to be a sermon or a lecture um, and I also felt that I didn't particularly just want to write sad music about polar bears or you know mm. There's, there, there are many things to be sad about, but that, I don't think that's because I think my strength is as, as a storyteller. I was particularly interested in finding a way of writing about climate change in theatre. Uh, so it was the challenge there that it was an issue-based thing, and you're more rooted in story in, in telling stories. Well, no, I, I, mean, I, I realise that they're both stories, but uh, the, the challenge is that the stories <laughs> are so big. Yeah, and how do you fit that on a stage? And uh, you know, and I've seen a number of attempts at that in spoken theatre. Uh, and I wouldn't say that any of them have been a complete triumph. It's just, it's very hard it's mm. because the subject's so big. And um, then I, I hit on two kind of allegorical approaches. Uh, so um, I wrote actually a piece for Salisbury a few years back uh, called The Walk from the Garden, which is the story of Adam and Eve being banished from the Garden of Eden. And the piece is as long as it is from the moment when God says get out to the moment when they actually walk out of the gates and it's a, a chance to acknowledge what it is that is being lost and so that's it's that's a you know it's a metaphor that uh, but it it does describe something of what it is like to realize that you're living through a mass extinction mm. um but it's it it's somewhat indirect um and Another opera, which was the day after, uh, which is using a Greek myth of Phaeton, um, the boy who tries to drive the chariot of the sun, but doesn't know what he's doing, and so the sun comes too near to the earth and essentially creates global warming in the, in the myth. That's what happened. And in our version of it, it survivors of an unnamed catastrophe are retelling this story. This is how did we get here? Um, and I think that has some power and some urgency but I, I, did, I was still wanted to write something which was actually a bit more literal which was more uh, explicit perhaps and, and then it dawned on me a story that you could sing because, the thing, you know, it's, because I'm thinking about things that you can put on stage and getting a, a melting iceberg on stage is, is hard mm-hmm. uh, you want the, just the human drama but but the drama involves so many people over such a long period of time, and you know, and the the changes kind of creep up on you. It's it's uh, not e- immediately obvious how to, to frame that. But uh, then it, it occurred to me that telling the story the story of climate refugees that was something you could sing. You know, I've lost my home is something you can mm. sing. Uh, at that time, I made it too elaborate because I was thinking, oh well, this is but this is a story. This isn't just for a a single theatre because this is a story about communities so it should be a kind of community opera and it's something that I've done a fair amount is writing operas for very large amateur cast um, but I thought but it's also it's a global problem so in some way it should be a global community opera how do you do that and I had this idea which seemed simple and achievable which is well you could perform it in two or three paces simultaneously using the internet and big screens and create a networked performance and 
enough people thought that was a good idea that we did explore it and we found partners in Rio and Cape Town but you have to find somewhere where the time zones aren't too far apart um, but then you've got to factor in how can you write music when you're not quite sure what the delay is going to be between one screen and the next but there are, there are ways and obviously the, the more kind of ambient the music is the easier it is the more flexible it can be to accommodate the, the delay harder to write music with <coughs> Pulse Let's not have a kind. pulse. Yes, <laughs> keep it quite but, but, but if the pulse relates to the delay, it's again, it is possible to, to make a kind of coherent music. Anyway, we went some way down that path and the technology just wasn't, wasn't available that, at that point. Um, I mean, people imagine, of course, we've, we've had network performances and with satellite and, you know, you can... With... Um, you know, if Madonna were doing something, you could mobilise the resources. It would be financially worth it. But for uh, for lesser mortals, the you know the, the economics don't really make sense. And just on using the internet, there, there wasn't a, a suitable. There's too need. much latency in the internet. Yeah. So did did that no come to fruition? So it didn't come to fruition. Right. And I then rather kicked myself and wished I'd simply written. Uh, a piece to be performed in one theatre about climate refugees because that could. Does be something happen now. when? Does something happen then when you've when you've embarked on a project uh, with with that sort of energy and enthusiasm, and then you reach a point where actually this can't go any further. This is we're just going to have to part with this now. Do, do, do you form an emotional connection with a project such yes. that when that point comes, there's a there's a sense of loss. There is a kind of, of grief for the piece that didn't get written. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's there. Uh, but also you run out of time, and then you have to do other things. Do you have to then put that aside and just forget about it, or can it not be, can it not be reworked into something else? I mean, you know, I, I heard you say, oh, I wish I'd done it for community <laughs> theatre, and immediately the voice in my head is going, well, why didn't you? <laughs> do, 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 do you see what I mean? Yes, uh, in a way the moment passed and I was all then, then taken up with other things. But it, I wouldn't say that it's gone away, so it's, it's um, something that I keep in mind as a possibility. Because climate change is a, is a thing that resonates for you, because Gaia's theory is something that was clearly important for you. Yes, I mean, I think, I think Gaia's theory is particularly appealing because... Uh, although we don't know what's going to happen, there is something in what James Lovelock describes, there is something to celebrate uh, without knowing the future, but the, just the, the idea that the whole of the Earth is a, behaves as a self-regulating organism and the animate and inanimate things all somehow appear to conspire to keep the planet in the conditions suitable for life. And you think that's amazing that that's happened that the sun apparently has got 30% hotter in the years since there has been life on Earth, but the Earth hasn't got 30% hotter, and because all of these things are adjusting, and I think it's it's a it's a, a beautiful idea, and that was what I wanted to celebrate: this idea that and and James Lovelock talks about all of these elements being locked into a kind of dance, and so I wanted to imagine that dance.
I'm reminded of what you said about Mansfield Park. Hmm. It's the same. It's the same sort of idea that you that you hear stuff. You certainly talk about music visually, yeah. uh, and you hear about you, you talk about how words inspire music for you. Hmm. Uh, it's the same. It's the same with that, isn't it? Yes, I, I mean, it's quite hard to visualise some of these things, in fact, and that was perhaps part of the challenge in, in writing the piece, was being clear enough in my mind of what it was that I was trying to evoke. Um, but it certainly created lots of orchestral possibilities, and it was something I, I enormously enjoyed writing. I think if it had been uh, a doomy piece about destruction... Uh, there are probably other composers who would do that better. But, but I think uh, celebrating things is something that I have uh, feel some inclination to do. Are you, therefore, a reasonably positive and upbeat individual? I think I probably am, I th- and I think that's why... <laughs> Sorry about that. How oh, <laughs> annoying. Another uh, you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you are a positive and upbeat individual, then? Or, I, uh, or perhaps I just like... I like what the music of Positive Upbeat Individual sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Other composers that I've spoken to um, have said that each work that they they write is um, them on their developmental journey. Now, Hmm. I don't know whether this is a slightly uh, clever way of avoiding the question that I asked them, but I wonder whether you would agree with that. First of all, so this is a two-pronged question. Do you agree <laughs> with that statement or not? Uh, I think what I recognise in that statement is that very often there's a moment at the beginning of writing a piece where you have this glimpse of something and right. you move, which you move towards, and uh, and sometimes it feels like you've, you've really fallen short. And the piece that I've managed to write is not the piece that I thought I was going to write, and. So there's a sort of regret for that, but then there's a realising, actually, the piece I did manage to write has has got something after all, which I now enjoy. But that thing that I didn't write is then remains just out of reach, and I think that keeps us moving onward. So I suppose that is probably does relate to that idea of the developmental journey. Does that suggest, then, that uh, a composer's work is never done? (laughs) There's never a sense of completion. It's true. There's There's always... Another thing that's just out of reach. How annoying. Is that <laughs> annoying? I mean... Oh, do you want everything to be done? Do you want it all to be finished? Well, <laughs> I'd like to have my weekend. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I would like things to be done. Uh, and, and maybe... So is it like an itch? Uh, oh, gosh, I've never thought of it quite like that. Um, but... I mean, this is rather macabre. I do sometimes think it's also like a wound and that the way to heal the wound is to finish the piece. And that, so that there's something that's... I don't know what... I mean, it sounds a bit ghastly, but um, that is what it sometimes feels like. Well, it's a foil for that positive and right. upbeat sort of <laughs> <laughs> characteristic, which is, you know, you've, you've saved the podcast. Um, what, what is your go-to form? What is, you know, when somebody says to you, we want you to write X, what is the... What is the form that they ask you to write in that makes you go, oh, brilliant? Even if it's only internally. Uh, does, if, does form include opera, are you thinking? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, you know, if somebody asks you, oh, could you write an overture? Does a bit of you die inside? Oh, not another <laughs> overture. Uh, or or, or that, that's kind of the question I'm asking. Mm. Um, 
But the, the, the idea of an opera is always exciting to me. You know, there's going to be lights, there's going to be singers, there's going to be an orchestra. It's, uh, <laughs> right, so okay. who's, who's not going to want to write one of those? Okay. Um, but then any story might also have that uh, power to excite something. Um, but Which suggests then that actually the thing that drives you is it's got to have the story in it. There's got to be story in it. Well, I, I was actually the other day looking through pieces of mine to see how many of them didn't have a story. And the ones that don't have a story tend to be fast, interestingly, um, and not necessarily exactly a toccata, but there's quite a continual movement. Uh, so that is, I don't know, is that my default music? That's the sort of, mm, that's the music I make. If, if I'm not required to be doing anything else, it will tend to come out yeah, um, animated. And it's often a, a particular image that then will take me to a different kind of musical territory. Um, and, you know, there, there are pieces where I think of a colourful title, but only after I finish the piece. <laughs> <laughs> Very honest of <laughs> um, If we were to put your music through Shankarian analysis, what would we, what would we discover? <laughs> <laughs> that there's no background. Uh, right, I don't know. Fine. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know how, how much would it be reduced down to. I, I only ask because I never really understood the point of Schenker in the analysis. And I sort of ask in a slightly tongue in cheek way if somebody could just explain. Do you know? Uh, from my very. <laughs> You're looking very uncomfortable now. Well, because <laughs> <laughs> what I remember is that there's a, there are layers and layers of elaboration, but at the bottom of it all is a, a progression that's like three blind mice. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah that, that was how I understood it. Is mm. that ba- there's nothing else to it then? <laughs> There is, I mean, I'll be serious. I think, no, I think real analysts would tell you a lot more to that. But when I did, I spent a couple of years studying analysis, musical analysis, as, a, as an MMUS, uh, because I felt that there was some key, some mystery. Yeah. Uh, and that in some way this would help me to be a better composer. Yeah. Uh, after a while, I, it dawned on me that what I was doing was procrastination uh-huh. and that <laughs> I should just get on and start writing. Um, but also that the way that you describe or analyse music doesn't necessarily have anything to do, with, to do with the way that you write it. And how to make a good piece will not... You know, the, the, the answers to that are not in analysis. But it was a helpful thing. Schenker does talk about uh, composers elaborating these layers through improvisation and and I thought oh well I do that I, I improvise all the time so then I felt better and I felt well perhaps perhaps I'll just do the improvising and, <laughs> and, and let my unconscious make a, a lot of decisions how long was the MMUS? that was it was two two years of uh, one, but only one evening a week oh okay um, fine but fine. It, was, it was fascinating and uh, really interestingly taught at Christopher Wintle at Goldsmiths um, very, yeah. It was, it, it was it was very absorbing, and it was interesting encountering these different intelligences that had all been brought to bear on you know, the questions of how music works. But someone very wisely, I think Kevin Volan said, uh, composition is not reverse analysis. So oh. to to compose well, you just need to have something completely different. 
for example, a good idea. Which, uh, do you realise what you've just done, actually, in answering <laughs> that question? You have, you've circled back to the first question where I was asking you, describe your music, and you can do it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's very good. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify and Audioboom. To get in touch, please tweet at Thoroughly Good. You can also follow Thoroughly Good on Facebook and read the blog at thoroughlygood.me.